Hi, I'm Sage and welcome to my podcast. Here I will chat with you about my adventures in romance and non-monogamy and all of existence really, starting from my strict fundamentalist Christian childhood all the way through to where I am today, practicing relationship anarchy and still trying to figure life out bit by bit. Here you can expect frank discussions about religion, about trauma, about monogamy and of course about sex. I hope you'll have fun, I hope you'll find it interesting and most of all I hope you'll join the conversation. Hello my wonderful friends, it's me, I'm back, finally. Took me a while but here I am and it is a beautiful spring day. There's this family of birds nesting right outside my kitchen window and I hope throughout this podcast you'll hear the chirping in the background because there's obviously one or two baby birds and they have this very high-pitched little squeal and then you can actually hear when the parents pitch up to feed them because the squeals really intensify and then you can hear the parents responding chirps and then there's silence for another little while and then it picks up again the little squeals started but unfortunately it's a quiet moment now but hopefully in about five more minutes the parent birds will show up again and you'll have those noises in the background again because it's so beautiful So it's been a while since I recorded an episode, and that's been for a variety of reasons, Um, one of which was simply logistics. It's hard to find a spot that is quiet, that overlaps with a time that I have available, that I'm not supposed to be doing anything else. Ooh, I hope you can hear that. I think those were the parent birds, but they also get met with the little baby bird noises. Anyway, what was I saying? So logistics have been hard, and I wasn't at home for two weeks. I was looking after a friend's house, and it was so beautiful and quiet over there. It was the ideal spot to record a podcast episode, and much to my surprise, I ended up not doing so, mainly because I was waiting for a moment when I would have something coherent to say and I finally realized that I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. I keep waiting for the life lessons or the little digestible tidbits to sort of fall neatly into my lap so I can give them to you but I'm in a space of chaos. It's beautiful chaos, it sometimes is even fun chaos but I can't distill the little droplets of life easily from that and give you a coherent little story so instead at some point I just decided well I've just got to sit myself down and tell you about what's been happening and hopefully it'll resonate and hopefully it'll be interesting and if it's not well then I still have the upcoming episode about masturbation so hopefully that one will be interesting and then I have a few more in the pipelines that I think are going to be fun but this is going to be mainly a life update and musings type episode. I thought I'd begin with a message that I received from a friend about two or three days ago. She had finally listened to my episode three. I don't know if you heard that episode or if you can remember it but episode three titled Being in Love and Other Drugs Uh, was mainly me having a rant about people feeling like they have the right to comment or even preach about other people's reproductive and mental health choices. And I specifically complain about um, what I would call like the spiritual woman movement, which talks, which puts a lot of emphasis on the beauty and the spirituality of womanhood, the female body, and its its specific power and its specific holiness and the wonderful things that it can do and what it contains and etc etc and i had a bone to pick with that because i personally had felt attacked by for instance this movement's really strident call against 
the use of the contraceptive pill and other contraception and hormonal specifically treatment. And I personally felt attacked by it because I'm, I chose to go the hormonal contraceptive pill route and I felt like that movement was telling me that I'm not woman enough, that I'm doing womanhood wrong. And so my friend sent me this message and said she feels a little upset or at least she disagrees with me because she felt that this movement was so, so valuable to her because prior to really encountering information on Instagram and on social media about the beauty and the power and just the specialness and worthiness of the female body, she hadn't known that there was nothing wrong with her. She thought the way that her body functioned, everything from vaginal secretions to just, you know, being cyclical and spending some time of the month feeling very different from the rest of the time and having mood swings and being intense and emotional. She thought that was unique to her and she felt uninformed and concurrently ashamed of herself, of the way that her body worked until she got access to this information, which is very often given in these spiritual circles. But the fact that she wasn't only not alone, not only was there nothing wrong with her, but it was beautiful. The way her body works is beautiful, it's sacred, it's wonderful. So she had a bit of a bone to pick with me about the fact that I criticized this movement. And it made me realize she was bringing up a really beautiful point, and that is the fact that so many people, so many women don't have any information about their bodies. This is, I think this is starting to change. The tide is starting to turn. But definitely when I was a teenager, when many of my peers were teenagers, we knew nothing about our own bodies. We didn't know that the way that we are is not only perfectly normal, but perfectly wonderful. And so... Whilst I am put off by a lot of what these movements are saying, by what I feel is often transphobic, by what I feel can be exclusionary, by what I feel can be excessive, honestly, and puts me off, I do also want to pause and say they're doing really important work. For instance, just talking about menstruation, talking about the fact that this is a beautiful, natural part of for most women being a woman, it's a beautiful natural part of having a female body that there's nothing to be ashamed of there. That is powerful and important work. And it's actually, I find it quite sad that it is still so necessary. I find it quite sad that menstruation and female sexuality and the female orgasm, that all of these things are cloaked in so much mystery and shame to this day. But the fact is, it is so. And therefore, those movements are doing really beautiful, valuable work. And I have friends who occupy these spaces, who teach in these spaces, who talk a lot about the cyclical nature of femininity, about the female body. And I want to acknowledge that they're doing beautiful work, even though I don't agree with or resonate with everything that they're doing. And I was really grateful for this friend sending me this message and disagreeing with me and pointing out to me that my strong response is my strong response and that does not mean it's the universal and only truth. I mean, this is the case for everything, right? Things that annoy us, things that trigger us, things that we feel are excessive or not nuanced, those things are at the same time beautiful and wonderful and have their place for other people and I just, I just love being reminded of that. And that also brings me to... This thought of my body is wrong. This idea that my friend expressed in a message to me saying that for a long time, for the longest time, she thought the way that her body works is wrong. There's something wrong with her. There's something strange about her. There's something embarrassing and kind of shameful about the way that her body functions. And I could identify so strongly with that because I, like most people, I believe, have felt that so many times in my life. I think for many people that a lot of that is around quite simply just, just the normative body standards we get handed, you know, like one type of body is the right type of body. If you're a man, it should look like this. If you're a woman, it should look like that. I mean, when I think back to my teenage years, I was obsessed with cellulite. I firmly believe that I had cellulite. 
And the other the other thing that I obsessed about was being too small. I felt too skinny, too bony, too boyish looking. And I hate constantly referring to my dad. It feels a little, I tend to kind of want to roll my own eyes at myself. Like, oh, here we go again. But it's just that our parents' voices are some of the most formative voices in our lives, right? And um, what they tell us directly and indirectly stays with us for so long. My dad, for instance, was always very... I don't know, he just wasn't a fan of my skinniness. He just didn't like it. He kept saying, oh, you know, men prefer women with bigger bodies and with more curvy bodies or, my child, why are you so skinny? And so as a child, I um, I always try to eat more than anyone else just to prove to everyone that, I don't know, that I can, like, I was trying to gain weight, just become more solid, become less skinny and disappointing, you know, I, somehow. So there can be those those obvious sort of body standards that none of us manage to ever comply to, but that stay with us. This message of I am wrong somehow. There's something wrong with how I'm made. And I think that's so devastating because believing that our body is wrong goes to the very core of being human. Like your body is the house you're living in, the thing you carry with you, the thing I'm learning more and more that holds your deepest truths. It is a place we're meant to go to, to know where to next, what next. What does my body want? What does my body say? Do I want to draw closer to this person? Do I want to step away? Do I want to do a delicate dance with them? Do I want to flee? What is my body saying? What do I want to eat? Where am I holding grief? Where am I holding joy? Am I terrified? Does my stomach hurt? Do I need comfort? Do I need challenging? All of those questions and those answers are located in our bodies. But most of us from a very young age believe that our bodies are somehow wrong. And so we don't listen to them. In fact, we, it's not even we don't listen to them. We never even learn to contact our bodies to really get in touch and live from a, an embodied place. I was born with a club foot. That means that my right foot was completely bent. Basically, if you picture like a little skew foot, my big toe is pointing towards my ankle. So it was almost like circle shape. And thanks to my mom doing physio with me every day, doing foot exercises with me every day as a baby, and then some surgeries when I was one, and then another huge surgery when I was 14, which was extremely traumatic and painful. And I'm still living with the after effects. The surgeon made a few mistakes. Anyway, after all of these surgeries, my legs more or less, you know, do what they need to do. I, don't, I no longer have a club foot, although my one leg does look very different from the other one. And it's, it has less of a calf. My ankle is misshapen and I have many scars. And of course... Physically, I can do fewer things. I can't really run. I can climb, but I climb much slower than other people. I get tired a bit easier and I can't dance as well as I would love to. I mean, I still dance and I think I would say I'd, I give it a pretty good go. But as a child, I had this dream of one day becoming a ballerina. And of course, I had to learn at some point, listen, that's not going to happen with your body. Anyway, but I remember as a child feeling a profound shame about my leg, feeling like there's something wrong with me. My body didn't do the thing it was meant to do, which was just to work. My ankle doesn't bend. My one leg was shorter than the other. All of these things that other people just take for granted, my body doesn't do. And it doesn't look like other people's bodies either. And it comes up every now and again still, although much less so. And interestingly enough... The big thing for me wasn't just the fact that my body doesn't do what other bodies do, but the fact that it's not, quote unquote, beautiful. I had this really big thing as a child. I believed that men choose women based on having beautiful legs for some reason. I think because my mom had really beautiful legs, really fine ankles, nice calves. And my dad used to tell her that often like oh you have such beautiful legs and I remember somehow internalizing the message as a child that because I don't have quote-unquote beautiful legs I am never gonna be loved at least not in a romantic sense 
I I carried this with me and in fact it was such a deep shame that I almost never I didn't speak about it I didn't really mention it to other people I, f- I find that with deep deep shame you don't talk about it you can't bring it to the light because it's too shameful to even mention that you're ashamed it's too vulnerable to be for other people to know that you have this huge ache and it was just this huge ache I wanted to be beautiful and I felt that I couldn't like it was not meant for me I wasn't ever gonna be beautiful and I could spend podcasts and podcasts and podcasts talking about beauty and I hope I will I think it's a huge topic for now I just want to link that to self-trust I think that due to many reasons amongst others the fact that I felt like my body was deficient and shameful And just all the myriad ways we get told, all of us get told that the way we are is wrong. I feel like I have really struggled to trust my path and really struggled to trust my body's truth. It's almost been quite terrifying discovering, first of all, how far removed I am from my body and really undertaking this journey of coming back to myself through coming back to my body and this makes me really sad just talking about this encountering once I did return to my body the deep grief inside of me the deep grief in my joints in my knees in my legs in my feet in my hips the deep grief in my hips the tightness there the sorrow there And as I learned gradually to return to my body through doing practices such as yoga and breath work and just being with myself and even sex, which is, which can be a very embodied experience or a very out of body experience. And I've had both experiences. I've been, I've had experiences of having sex without being in my body whatsoever, being completely removed from myself, from my own truth, just acting out a role, just playing some part and then I've had sex and that's increasingly so where I'm so fully in my body that it's terrifying because my body is just so loud all of a sudden and I've realized as I'm having embodied practices as I'm having embodied sex or yoga or walking or holding myself sitting on my couch and just holding myself so tightly my body says finally here you are thank you and it just punches me with grief this grief of having been ignored for so long of having been dismissed for so long of having been not appreciated for so long not having been heard so it's as i am returning to my body i am spinning almost i'm wobbly with the shock of the intensity that is here the intensity in my bones, in my muscle, in my sinew, the depth of joy and sorrow that one body holds. And it makes me sad. It makes me sad that I spend so much time being ashamed of my body, being kind of embarrassed of it, not listening to it, ignoring it, overriding it. And it makes me sad that our entire culture teaches us to do this to not listen to our own deepest truth to not listen to this essential thing that we live in that holds us religion does that too it it definitely did that for me and i'm sure it did that for the majority of you as well it teaches you not to trust yourself your body it, it makes this distinction between the spirit and the flesh. I think Paul says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And there are so many passages in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, where Paul and other apostles and other writers make this black and white distinction between the sinfulness of the flesh and the holiness of the spirit, of Jesus having come to redeem us from our own carnal base longings and what that does is not only does it vilify the body but it also teaches us that we cannot trust ourselves that our wisdom is to be outsourced that truth comes from elsewhere than from within us 
And it makes this weird distinction, this really strange distinction between the holy and the base, the flesh. I think we see that with some Greek philosophers as well, and definitely with um, the Age of Enlightenment. So it's not just a product of Christianity, but there's this, you know, the rational, the mental, or the spiritual, depending on how you describe it, and then the flesh, the body, the emotional, which is kind of the embarrassing part of being human, the thing that you're not meant to really pay attention to. For instance, when I was a child, we were taught that meditation is bad because if you quiet your mind, that might give the devil space to enter. That might give evil spirits the space to enter. We were taught that you shouldn't place yourself in sexual temptation. And I've spoken about that before. My friend Wolfie sent a voice note about that last in my last episode. This um, deep distrust of any kind of message that might originate from the body. And it teaches you to outsource your wisdom, to look to others to tell you what to do. So for me, and I think for many, for many others, in childhood and in adolescence, this manifested as profound uncertainty and embarrassment. Um, almost not being able to make a decision or go out on a limb or embody joyfulness like I just didn't do joyful things in my body I didn't dance I didn't run um, I didn't do any spontaneous bodily things because I was always aware of the fact that my body is wrong and that I cannot that it you know it's just it's just a weird thing it's like this awkward flesh palace that I'm in it also manifested as huge awkwardness around sexual feelings <laughs> when I stopped when I went through puberty and I had all of these feelings I remember being extremely weird about them, extremely hesitant about what was happening. And I just, I just ignored it. My body would have all of these, these tingles and this sort of, I would read a passage in a book where people kissed and I would feel all hot and bothered and just sort of try and ignore that and go for a walk. And I had a lot of shame about around pleasure. And as you know, I intended to make this episode about masturbation, which isn't going to be, but the next one will hopefully be so. And then I'll discuss this more, but a lot of shame around pleasure. And that perhaps is one of the worst things that this religious upbringing and the heritage, and it's not just for me. It's n This is not only true for people like me who were raised in overtly religious fundamentalist households. I think it's true to some degree or another of almost everyone who was raised in a culture that has been heavily influenced by religion and also heavily influenced by this rationality emphasizing enlightenment type thinking, you know, reason above body, reason above pleasure, the mind over the heart. The result is this vilifying of pleasure. And that's weird because if you look at society in general, it looks like everybody's seeking pleasure, but it's not. It's like we're all seeking pleasure in a sort of a fast food kind of way. Like we can't really center it overtly like on the one hand we all want to feel good we all want to do things and make us feel good and on the other hand we all feel like well that's not really like pleasure might feel good but you can't give it a place of priority in your life like it's not we don't I think acknowledge enough that pleasure is also a, a carrier of messages pleasure is also the thing that points you in the direction you need to go so for the longest time I just didn't know how to listen to my own inner compass. If anything, I believe that suffering was probably the thing pointing me in the right direction. If it hurts, you're probably doing it right. I think another effect of, of this deep distrust in the body and deep distrust in one's own truth to the extent of not even knowing, having a concept of one's own truth was just doing what you're supposed to do and I see again this with many of my friends who studied the thing that they were meant to study and entered into a career that they were meant to enter into and in their 30s are coming to this disillusionment of oh, I did all of these things because I was meant to do them and I have no idea what it is that I want except for the fact that I feel disillusioned and disappointed. I'm noticing so much disappointment around me of like, was, was this the land of milk and honey I was promised? I did it all like I was supposed to. What is up with this? So interestingly enough, being so divorced from my own bodies, being so divorced from my own truths, 
is also a very efficient avoidance mechanism because we never have to sit with the scary truths that our bodies might be telling us. And then once we do encounter them, it's utterly terrifying, or at least to me it is. I'm now starting more and more to encounter what my body says it wants, what my gut says it wants, and more and more feeling like I need to honor that. The more I honor my body, the more I give myself the gift of speaking the truth, of showing up in truth, of having my body and my soul and my mind in agreement, saying something, doing something, of having my relationships be super vulnerable and truthful, of, of letting my body respond in the ways that it does. The more I do that, the more I feel like I would die if I stopped doing that. It feels that intense. Like if I now bring some untruth into my life, if I bring relationships into my life where I'm being a little bit fake or a little bit disingenuous or a little bit shallow or I don't fully show myself, it feels like I might die as a result because I have now been telling the truth and now I can't deny the truth anymore. I can't backslide, to use a Christian word, into betraying my body. I was raised to ignore and silence and betray myself. But now that I've stopped doing so, there's no turning back. Does that sound incredibly dramatic? Because if, if it does, good. I mean it in an incredibly dramatic way. Like it feels so profound. It's like in my last episode, I spoke about shame. And I spoke about being on hyper alert as I inadvertently or on purpose show myself to people in my life. As people in my life get to know me, there's this sense of whiplash as my ego voice shouts louder and louder, get the fuck away from this, you're being too exposed, you're too vulnerable, people are going to leave, so you better leave first, stop showing yourself. And that's really interesting because this puts me in a very difficult place. On the one hand, my ego voice is shouting louder than ever, protect yourself, stop being so exposed, stop giving the world your underbelly, just put on some armor for fuck's sake. And on the other hand, I have my inner knowing and, my, and the voice of my body saying, yes, this, this is good, listen to yourself, show up fully, show up vulnerably, be embarrassed, this is splendid. And so there's almost nowhere I can go where some or other voice isn't shouting at me. Where the ego isn't dying a painful death, and it'll be a lifelong death, like it's going to keep on dying. I don't think I'm ever going to, you know, wake up into a state of having no ego. So I think it's going to be my constant companion. Here I am, I guess, trying to relearn. And I think that's just true of so many of us, trying to relearn what it is that I want when should I push myself into a state of discomfort and growth? And when should I honor my need to be slow and soft and scared and gentle? When should I say, I can't do this right now? And when should I say, right, I want to challenge myself. Let's do this right now. I think it was Gabo Mate who said that humans have two basic needs, and that's belonging and authenticity. And that when we have to choose, we will always choose belonging because we need to be in a group to survive. We need others to get our basic physical needs met. And so if we have to surrender or to sacrifice authenticity to belong, that's what we'll do. And where I am right now, and increasingly so, is in a space of realizing that if I'm not authentic, then I do not have belonging. That in fact, the two are linked and are almost the same thing. So if I think that I belong, if I'm in relationships and in situations where I, f where I imagine that I belong, but I'm not being authentic, then more and more, I just don't even feel a sense of belonging anymore. So it's becoming this increasingly narrow road that I'm walking where I need to check in with myself so gently and so accurately to be sure that I am being truthful, that I am speaking my body and my heart's truth. Because otherwise, there's this huge discordance and I feel, I feel unsafe. 
Does that make sense? So it's almost like the two roads are coming together. Belonging and vulnerability are becoming one thing. And if I'm out of alignment with myself, it feels horrible. It feels like a death. And so the more I honor my own truth, the more like tightrope walking it becomes. And the more I realize how often in the past I have not honored my own truth. So what's been happening in my life? What's been happening in my life has been all of the things. <laughs> it's been a time of such intense joy and gratitude and union really with life with the universe I feel so part of it all I feel so part of this beautiful life and also I feel absolute abject terror a lot a lot of the time and grief it's a lot this has been beautiful September started out as I said for me with uh, getting off the antidepressants and then I had that whole shame episode, basically, where I really encountered my own vulnerability, my own shame. And since then, it's just been an expansion of walking into unknown terrains in, in almost every area of my life. One of the big ones has been that last Monday, so today, a week ago, I'm recording this on Monday the 4th, last Monday, I gave my three months notice at work. We're meant to give three months notice when we want to resign. I work for a university. I'll talk more about my job at some later stage. But I've been working, I've been doing this job for 10 years. I started when I was 22. And I've been working for this university for nine years. And in many, many ways, it's been nourishing and wonderful. And in many other ways, it's been frustrating and stifling. And I have become aware that I need to change directions if I'm going to be honoring, once again, my own truth. And that there's increasingly, as I'm learning to listen to myself more and more, I can't tolerate places in my life where I'm not living that truth. And my job was one of those big areas where I felt I'm not living my truth. I'm not being authentic. I'm doing a job that I no longer feel excited about. And sometimes it's fine. We live in a society where you need to earn money and you need to survive. And we can't always expect to be doing things that make us come alive in all areas of our life. But it's reached a point where I feel like I'm being dishonest. I'm not doing what's good for me anymore. I need to leave. And that to me is absolutely terrifying because I have no idea what comes next. I realized at the end of 2019 and at the beginning of 2020, I, I had this, a few of these light bulb moments where I realized, okay, I'm giving myself two years. Two years feels right to prepare for whatever else whatever comes next, and then I need to resign. So I always knew I had this deadline. At the end of 2021, I'm handing in my resignation. And then, of course, 2020 happened, and I don't need to tell you that that was not a year that any of us had planned for. And so I didn't grow my writing practice as quickly as I thought I would. I did blog, and I'm really glad I did because it got me in the practice of writing, but I didn't blog as much as I thought I would. I didn't write as much poetry as I thought I would. I didn't start making my zines, which I'm really excited about and I want to do. And I also realized that having a full-time job while trying to get your side hustles going is really hard, especially when your full-time job does not nourish you, doesn't give you joy. But I decided to stick to my deadline, and so I handed in my resignation, gave my three months notice, and the 31st of December 2021 will be my last day at work. What am I doing next? I don't quite know. I want to write. More specifically, I want to facilitate other people's stories. That's what excites me. What excites me is, is meeting strangers, meeting People with strange and beautiful stories and everybody has strange and beautiful stories and facilitating conversations and making little collections and zines about strangers' weirdest experiences. I want to make a zine where people write a letter to their past selves or a letter to someone that they wish they'd written or I want to make a zine, like little collaborations with some of my poet friends where we just publish some of our favorite poems by ourselves and 
I have so many ideas, but basically the gist of it is that I want to grow this podcast and I want to grow my writing in general and have that be a really collaborative, open, expansive storytelling space. That's what I'm feeling pulled towards. I'm also feeling pulled towards traveling and meeting new people, but traveling locally, traveling in South Africa and more specifically in the south of South Africa, the Western Cape, the Eastern Cape, perhaps the Northern Cape. And visiting all of my beautiful friends that I have collected over the years who are doing such beautiful, exciting things. And also making new friends doing beautiful and exciting things. So if you are someone who is involved in a project, in a food forest, in an NGO, in a an initiative, in a collaborative, if you are on a farm or if you have skills or teach skills or need volunteers or know of someone who's doing something really cool, let me know. Because what I have in mind so far is to put all my things in storage, except my clothes. I love my clothes, so I'm just going to somehow try and fit two wardrobes full of beautiful clothes in my car fit my dog in the car and drive and I should add my car is tiny and visit my friends who are doing fun things like having organic farms in the Eastern Cape, living off the land by themselves, self-sustainable, self-sufficient, who are getting involved in the communities around them and volunteering at every place I arrive, giving my time, hopefully gaining some knowledge, some skills, getting to know more people and hopefully living cheap. That's my main thing. I want to live really cheap and grow my podcast, grow my writing practice and let it happen organically. I want to not be forced to make a living out of this. I want to be able to live so cheaply and have no debt so that I can grow my podcast into whatever it wants to become without having the extra pressure of having to, quote-unquote, make it a success. So that's what I've been feeling a pull towards, and it is scary because I've had a steady job for 10 years, and that has meant a lot to me because I grew up in a very unsteady household where money was always an issue, where my parents routinely borrowed our pocket money and never paid it back because they'd run out of money, and so my savings that I'd hoarded over the past few months savings from all the tooth mask gifts and birthday gifts and birthday cards, all of those 10 rands and 20 rands that I put together, my parents would borrow in one fell swoop. And so by the time I became an adult, I knew that I had only myself to rely on, that I had to get a good job, a good degree, and have a livelihood, a steady, dependable livelihood. And that's what I had for the past 10 years. And now, somehow, I'm feeling a pull towards uncertainty and volatility, which is terrifying. And again, is the only thing I know I can do because that is where my deepest truth is. And I also want to say that that links for me also to relationship anarchy. I, what I mean by relationship anarchy is not only like a very far out version of polyamory. Sure, that's what it can look like. That's how it can manifest. But for me, relationship anarchy is about Anarchy, right? And anarchy, that word, that concept, anarchism, is based on two principles. One is that humans can and will organize themselves when and if the need arises. We can come up with innovative solutions ourselves. We don't need somebody telling us how to do it. And the second principle of anarchy is that all authority is illegitimate unless proven otherwise. So all institutions, all hierarchies, all forms of power that are placed upon us are illegitimate and unnecessary unless specifically proven otherwise, unless we choose them. So it's, it's a, a state of deep freedom, but deep freedom implies tremendous responsibility because you need to keep checking in with yourself that what you're doing is truly the right thing for you, that it's truly the right thing for your community that you're cooperating with other people. So it's not this state of radical rebellion. Sure, once again, it could be that. Um, But for me, how I feel I'm living out relationship anarchy right now, or perhaps I should rather say how I'm living out anarchy right now, is to abandon the concept of having a steady job and a steady income and instead following only my gut and deciding I'm going to do what resonates deeply and trust 
in my own abilities, but also trust in the goodness of others. Trust in connection, trust in friendship, trust in the beautiful connections I've been building over the past decade and a half. So that's definitely been one way that I think I've been living out relationship anarchy and I don't, I'm not good at it, whatever good means, and I see the same in my relationships. I have this podcast about non-monogamy or relationship anarchy and I think the implication is that I must really know what I'm talking about and I don't. And as soon as I do think that I know what I'm talking about, I'm reminded that I don't, that I'm constantly being faced with new challenges, new triggers, new insecurities, huge fears. And then when I feel so triggered, I keep being shocked, like, I've been doing this non-monogamy thing for officially for almost four years now, and before that, unofficially for a few more years. Why? Why am I so triggered? Why is this so hard? Why is this bit so hard? Why out of the sudden something hit me like this? And it's all part of it. And I want to say that just because I have a podcast about this doesn't mean that I know what I'm talking about. And then as I was making notes and I wrote down on my notes, I don't know what I'm talking about. I had this deep sense of, but yes, I do. I do know what I'm talking about. Every day, I learn more specifically about me. So when I talk about me, I do know what I'm talking about. And when I talk about this path, this strange journey of having to check in with one's own truth and one's own desires every step of the way, I do know what I'm talking about. It doesn't mean that I'm good at it, whatever good means. It doesn't mean that I've got this down, but I am here. I am learning. And on myself... I am becoming an expert. I read a post by Clementine Morrigan yesterday. Actually, I want to read this to you. She writes, If you're polyamorous but your dating life is a constant struggle due to attachment issues and trauma, you are not alone. If being polyamorous seems to be more about coping with your intense feelings about your partner's dating life and less about having a fun dating life of your own, you are not alone. People with insecure attachment and or complex trauma can have a harder time with dating, sex and intimate relationships. In the context of polyamory, we can struggle both with feeling secure in the relationships we do have and with creating the other intimate connections we want. On top of all of this, we can feel like a failure and wish polyamory were more fun and less work. The reality is that, as traumatized people, we have chosen to do dating and intimate relationships on hard mode. For some people it's not worth it, and for others it is. Only you can decide if hard mode is challenging in a generative way, or if it's not serving you. Either way, you're not a failure. You're doing your best to build a fulfilling life with secure connections, and that's harder for people with developmental trauma. Trying polyamory is brave, and the pain and struggle you experience is part of the work. I love that she writes, we're doing this in hard mode. I feel like I'm doing life in hard mode right now. And sometimes I'm like, why don't I just give myself a break? Why don't I just stay with a job that pays? Why don't I just go into relationships or a relationship that is reliable, that has beautifully clear boundaries and delineations and where I know what to expect and what to give? Can't I just give myself a break and do something that's easy for once? And I actually found myself, because recently I've been going through through ups and downs of feeling extremely expansive in in my relationship with the mage, for instance, and then feeling extremely triggered and insecure and being so annoyed with myself. So on top of my work intensities and, and anxiety, I've been really running into, oh, out of the blue, I'm feeling exposed. Out of the blue, I'm feeling unbearably vulnerable. And then the next day, I might feel expansive and powerful again and giving you know I send him a message and say listen it feels so good it feels so good to me that you see other people and that I see other people and that we have a lot of space and trust and joy and the ability to just connect however feels right and this is a it's almost like a gift I want to give him of like just go just go and be exactly your wild weird self And I mean it from the bottom of my heart. And then the next day I'm like, I feel triggered, I feel triggered, I feel triggered, I feel terrified, I'm going to be alone, This everything's going to end, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, everything is hard, everything is really, really hard. (laughs) And what what whiplash. And also at the same time, 
just because it's hard doesn't mean it's wrong. I also want to say the opposite is true. Just because it, it's hard doesn't mean it's right. And that's the legacy of learning not to trust ourselves, learning not to trust our bodies, is that we don't have a well-developed, fine-tuned instinct for what the right thing is, what the next right step is. I was talking to my therapist last Tuesday and I was saying to her, I feel so scared that I might repeat my mother's mistakes, that I might wake up one day and realize, oh, I don't know how this happened, but I'm being gaslit. I don't know how this happened, but I'm in, a, in an abusive situation. Or even worse, that I might wake up one day and realize I've become my father, that I'm an abuser, that I'm treating someone else unfairly. I'm so terrified of repeating my parents' mistakes, of repeating my ancestors' mistakes, that every step I take feels fraught. And that's compounded by the fact that I, like everyone else really, haven't been taught to listen to my own body, haven't been taught to listen to my own gut. And she said to me, you're fine. You're aware. You're here. You're aware of these issues. You're paying attention to yourself. You're paying attention to your relationships. You're checking in with yourself. You're fine. Stop worrying about this. It makes sense that you're terrified. And this is what happens to many people who have developmental trauma is that they're scared of their own path. They're scared of their own truth. They're scared they might miss the signs completely because the signs are muddled and sometimes what feels like your intuition is actually just anxiety trauma induced anxiety so sometimes you feel a very strong resistance towards something but that's just your ego voice avoiding discomfort but in spite of this in spite of all the conflicting messages coming at me I know that more and more I am in alignment I'm listening to myself I'm doing this it's so beautiful it's so scary it's so healing I feel like every moment that I choose to honor myself something heals and that it becomes accelerated healing after a while because honoring your body once leads to honoring your body twice and then it snowballs into just really growing really fast and choosing this road of relationship anarchy, choosing to put myself in these weird circumstances like resigning my job and not knowing what comes next, of being in relationships where there are no clear outcomes or expectations. All of this is like, it's the accelerated path. And I'm not saying that the accelerated path is always right and will always be right for me, but it's led to some really beautiful experiences over the past while. And I guess I want to say to you that if you're terrified that you might not know what your intuition is saying, that you might be mishearing your body and its signals, that's okay. And the bare fact that you're scared of that means that you're paying attention. You're alert. There's something to be said for being for wise alertness. Someone else said to me, it's like, because I said to her, I don't want to be constantly on high alert. That's exhausting, having to constantly be on the lookout and not being able to relax. And she said to me, but that's not it. Animals in the wild graze and have a beautiful time and, and run around and play with each other and graze some more. And they manage to do all of this and be relaxed while at the same time being alert with a wise alertness, scanning the environment for signs of danger, being in tune with every turn of the wind, every scent on the breeze. It is possible to be both present and embodied and also wisely alert. And straddling that tightrope of wise alertness and also in tunedness with oneself and joy and presence, that's, I mean, that's just, it's, I find it really exciting. And I think that is what relationship anarchy to me is about more than about a specific type of relationship structure or um, having more than one partner or any of these things is just this being here, listening to myself, paying attention to others and not necessarily choosing either what's hard or what's easy, but following the joy, the aliveness. And that, I think, is where I'll leave you today. 
Thank you for being here for these rambles. Thank you for listening. Thank you for contributing and sending me messages. I'm so grateful for all, to all my listeners, for all of you. Thank you for all your words of encouragement and your support. And once again, I ask that you send me, send me your stories. Tell me what you want me to talk about. Tell me your experiences. And I want to make your voice part of this podcast. Thank you for being here. Nothing lasts forever Some things aren't meant to be But you'll never find the answers Till you set your old heart free Until you set your old heart free